Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? We are uh, in our family series right now. Next week, we'll be finishing that up um, on a sermon of gender and sexuality. I encourage you to come back to that. But this morning, uh, the goal for today is to answer the question, what is a woman? What is a woman? And, uh, and I understand the irony here, uh, especially in our culture today, a man telling a woman who she is uh, can be retweeted into oblivion. And um, I understand. I know that um, women, and, and even in the church, have been stereotyped, uh, belittled, and hurt by men. And my goal is not today to tell you who you are, but to highlight what the Bible says about womanhood. And, uh, and don't, get me, don't get me wrong, I understand also the irony of a man uh, saying that God told him to tell the woman who she is. Uh, when I was in college, a, a, a girl broke up with me and said God told her to do it, and I felt that was a little bit of a trump card. Um, and I understand the similarities here, and there seems to be no winning uh, this one, but I hope, I hope to be faithful to God's word this morning. Um, and I also want to encourage you to seek the scriptures out for yourself. Because the fact of the matter is, is men and women are different. Uh, shocking, I know, but it has to be said, and, and the differences are more than just biology. I've come to understand the differences a little bit better since uh, marrying Bethany, who did in fact read my sermon uh, this week. And these are more than uh, surface or stereotypical differences between men and women that I have learned. And, and as I've grown with my wife, I've noticed that she thinks differently than me. She feels differently than me. She relates uh, with different priorities than me. And the differences aren't better, they're not worse, they're just, they're just different. Culture would say these differences are personal and they're not connected to gender, but we will see that there's a fundamental connection between the gender you receive at birth and the roles we fulfill in God's creation. Uh, and, and I owe uh, much to the women in my life, and I would also say that um, I sent this uh, sermon to a number of ladies in our church uh, from 18 years old all the way up to 80 years old uh, to read, and I have appreciated their, uh, their input and their response on it. And so know this morning that my desire is not the, the subjugation or the mistreatment of women, but rather a life-giving freedom that biblical womanhood provides. And, and so this morning, I really want to do three things. Uh, I want to do three things. First, I want to look at a cultural understanding of womanhood. What has culture said uh, it means to be a woman? Uh, second, I want to develop a biblical definition of womanhood from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, and then last, I want to look at uh, the treatment and the conduct of women. Those are the three goals that I have for this morning, and I hope that after this morning, we will see that gender is part of God's plan and see that men and women are of equal status but different in role. Men and women are equal in status and different in role. So, first, let's look at a modern cultural understanding of womanhood. And I think when you're trying to define something, it's often good to look at what it's not. And when it comes to, to womanhood and femininity, there are a lot of things that we take as central to the definition that are not at all part of it. 
Our culture is confused when it comes to gender and gender roles, but there's also confusion uh, in the church and even in my own mind. So a few things that a woman is not defined by. Uh, First, a woman is not defined by her work. Whether or not she works in or out of the home, just because you hold a job out of the home or just because you're a homemaker does not define you as a woman. Uh, A woman can earn a salary and still be a woman. A woman is not defined by her work. A woman is also not defined by her marriage. A woman is no less a woman if she is married or unmarried. God has called some of us to marriage and he's called some of us to singleness. And and culturally, it seems that women raise more suspicion and, and questions when they're single, but your marital status does not define you as a woman. And it's deeper than whether or not you have a ring on your finger. A woman is not defined by her work, her marriage, and lastly, a woman is not defined by her motherhood. Children are a blessing, but they're not present in Genesis 1 when woman was created. Whether or not you have children or whether or not you will have children doesn't define you as a woman. Sisters, God has saved you and sent you on mission, and whether you work, get married, or have kids, you are still infinitely loved and valued by God in Christ Jesus. And and don't let anybody tell you that you are less than if you are in Christ Jesus because nothing is farther from the truth. There's a lot to be said about womanhood and culture is trying to be the loudest voice in the room. But when it comes to gender and gender roles, I have this sense that culture is a little stuck. When it comes to gender, I feel like culture is stuck between two priorities that it holds really dearly. Uh, culture at one time is trying to deny differences and uh, at the same time celebrate differences. Culture wants to at the same time deny that there are any fundamental differences between men and women, but then at the very same time celebrate those differences as the only important thing. And they're trying to hold these two things together, and they can't. Culture wants to fall away from biblically established genders and gender roles, and, and we really shouldn't be shocked at this development. Right? Over the last 70 years, our culture has been walking away from uh, the fact that truth is truth or that there is objective truth. Our culture has been leaning into the fact that personal freedom and what I want and what I decide is the most important. I think culture would go even further, though, and say that Christianity and God and the Bible is bad for women. It would say at best... It's suppressing women, and at worst, it's prejudiced against women. But I would argue that Christianity has done more for the equality of women than any other movement in the history of the world. Historically, has the church been perfect when it comes to the treatment of women? Absolutely not. But that is because they've strayed from biblical teaching and they've sought power over sacrifice. Jesus was countercultural in his treatment of women and his actions showing them to be equal and valuable at a time when women were seen as just property. Historians believe that the early church was made up, as, uh, made up of twice as many women as men. And today, apologist Rebecca McLaughlin says that, quote, both in America and across the world, there are significantly more Christian women than men. And women are more likely to go to church, 
read the Bible, and pray. Christianity isn't against women. It's the greatest movement of women in all of history. End quote. Why? Why is Christianity the greatest movement of women in all of history? It's because God is for women. He provides the foundation and structure of gender relationships. And we're going to see that womanhood is more than the external definitions that culture would put on us and that both genders were made in God's image. So what is true when it comes to womanhood? And when we look at this, first, I think it's important to remember where our identity is ultimately found. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is reminding us that our ultimate identity is found in Christ. It's not found in our our race or our economic status or our gender even, but rather it's found in our Savior who purchased us with his blood and is coming back for us. Our primary identity is who we are in Christ. So ladies, you are not ultimately defined by your, your marital status, your motherhood, your race, your work, or even your gender. You are defined by your relationship to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But gender matters because it was established by God at creation. Uh, I want to dig into Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me uh, to Genesis 1.26. That's where we'll be starting. Uh, we'll be jumping over to Genesis 2 as well. And if you uh, didn't bring God's word with you this morning, the text is going to be on the screen. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27 uh, looks at the creation of humanity. And it speaks to gender and gender roles. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27, this is what the word of the Lord says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see two things here with the creation of men and women. The first is that the Godhead gave both man and woman equal dominion and mission. Both men and women were charged by God to be involved in the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over God's creation, to be intimately involved in the way that life in God's creation happens. There is equal status, dominion, and mission between men and women, and that was given by God here in Genesis 26 and 27. So the first thing we find is that the Godhead gave both men and women equal dominion and mission. The second thing we find is that the Godhead made man and women both in their own image. And when we get here into gender differences, if we believe that the difference between men and women comes from creation, it means that there are inherent Differences, that there are differences built into who we were created to be, even before the fall. But these differences are, are, they're not based on worth, 
Each are equally worthy of honor because we're equally made in the image of God. These differences are not based on, on the image in whom we were created, right? It's not based on, on the mission that God gave to men and women. Both were given equal dominion, and both are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So we're of equal status in all of these different ways, but we're still different in calling and role. And, and I think there are two pitfalls when it comes to gender distinctions and gender roles. Uh, on one side is overemphasizing the differences between men and women to divisive levels. And society has tried at various points in history to, to promote one gender to the detriment of the other, mostly men over women. There's been abuse and neglect, sexual harassment, male chauvinism. Women have been minimized, objectified, ignored, and belittled, and these are sad realities that need to be acknowledged and repented of if we have participated or if we have stood silent without objecting as others participated. They're all efforts to devalue women, whether intentionally or not, but being made in the image of God means that men and women are of equal value, worth, and dignity. This is one pitfall, the overemphasizing of differences. The other side, the flip side of this, is when we try to minimize these beautiful differences between men and women, which minimizes the glory of God. Greater diversity of worshipers only serves to magnify the glory of God. Rather than respecting and honoring the differences and seeing them as beautiful aspects of the image and the glory of God, our society seeks to blur these lines. But God did not create us androgynous. He created us men and women. We have gender, and that is beautiful. God desires us to hold these similarities and, balance, and differences in balance. And so you see, when, when we talk about Biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, we must talk about the differences. We can't just talk about character in general. What is the character of a man? What is the character of a woman? Because men and women were both made in the image of God, and we are both being sanctified into the same image of Jesus Christ. So if the difference is more than biological, and we believe that the difference is more than biological, and if the difference comes from not the image in which we were created, both created in the image of God, nor the image into which we are being conformed, the image of Jesus Christ, the difference must be how we relate to each other. How do the genders interact? If we talk about character or image, then we are just talking about a Christian, or we are just talking about a human. It's only when we look at how one gender relates to the other gender that we find differences in the unique role each one plays. The definition of a man must include woman. And the definition of a woman must include man. So how do the genders relate to one another? And we find this relationship in Genesis 2. Uh, and Genesis 2 is, is a zoomed-in view. It's a more specific look at day 6 of creation, the day that God made man and woman. Genesis 2.18 looks at these differences and the way that genders relate. 
Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And here we find the first problem in God's creation. And, and as God looked over all of his creation, he said everything was good, right? He was working down the list and he, he looked at the water that he created. He looked at the forests and he looked at the animals and he just check, 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 good, 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 until he got to Adam. Uh, and it's important to note that there was, there's nothing inherently wrong with the way that God made Adam. It's not like God made Adam and messed up and so he had to make Eve. I've heard that before, right? That's not what is happening here. God did not intentionally create something that was bad. It was just incomplete. This passage highlights the importance of the relationship between men and women. The problem was something lacking from Adam's situation. It says that Adam was alone. And God, who is eternally in relationship with himself within the Trinity... He looked at the lack of companionship that Adam had and said that it was not good. And I also think it's important to, to note uh, that Adam's God-given task, Adam's God-given task at creation might have led him to realize his loneliness. Adam, or God charged Adam with naming creation. And, and I can't imagine that as Adam went around creation and he, he most certainly saw animals in groups and he looked and he said, where is, where's my group, right? He was looking at all of these animals that had companionship and relationship, and, and I can't imagine he didn't feel an emptiness. There was still something not good about his situation. And remember what Adam had. Adam lived in a sinless paradise. He had food provided for him. He had a purposeful work. He had fellowship with God. And yes, we affirm our ultimate sense of belonging is found in our relationship with God. But what this passage highlights is the importance of companionship. And it's here that God created woman. Into this obvious void where something was missing, God made Eve. And so if the first problem was loneliness, the first solution was in the following verse. A solution is a helper for Adam. Genesis 2.18 finishes, And I will make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. And there's uh, two words that I really want to dig into in this passage. God made a helper for Adam. And, and let's be honest, uh, this word does not sound like equality. This word does not sound like an equal. Helper can sound inferior in our culture today, but this is not in any way the intent of the word or the idea here in Genesis 2. This is the Hebrew word azer, and it's used 22 times in the Old Testament. Only twice here in Genesis is it used in reference to women. Over 16 times it's used in reference to God. Most often it's used in, in the Psalms where God is described as the helper of Israel. And, and so when we look at this word helper, there is no hint of inferiority. There's no hint of second or lower class. In fact, what it actually implies is that the person being helped requires support. And, and just as we wouldn't claim that God was inferior to the nation of Israel because he helped them, we wouldn't claim that Eve was inferior to Adam because she helped 
him. And we shouldn't look at this word helper like uh, the kid who holds the light for dad as he works on the car. Man was alone, and he was in need of help. And so God created woman. This is the first word that I want to look at, helper. Uh, The second word is translated fit for him. It's a singular word. It's translated fit for him, and it comes from the Hebrew keneged, which is a compound word, and it's got a really interesting meaning. Literally, you could translate this word as a helper according to the opposite of him. A helper according to the opposite of him. Someone who is the same but opposite. A mirrored reflection. And and as Adam went around doing his job of naming creation, he found all sorts of companions who were of the same creation, but no one who complimented him. And so we get to Genesis 2, 21 to 23. And this is the creation of woman. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I think Adam's response here is worth noting. He says, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taking, taken out of man. And this is the first worship song that's ever recorded in Scripture. As Adam looked around and saw his, his emptiness, his loneliness, his lack of companionship, He said it wasn't good. And as Adam came to Eve, as God brought Eve to Adam, he kind of explodes with this praise for what God did for him. The the problem of my loneliness is solved. Finally, I have someone who is like me in all of the right ways and different from me in all of the right ways. Thank you, God, for the ways that you have provided for me. This is Adam's response to the creation of woman, and this is God's desire for genders that man would complement woman, and that woman would complement man. Not uh, that one has dominion or is superior, and not that one is subjugated or tolerated, but that both serve unique roles for the glory of God, and that there be a sense of rightness about the ways that they interact. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, woman or womanhood is defined in relationship to two others, God and man. Just as uh, man, as biblical manhood is defined in relationship to two others, God and woman. First, a woman is defined as made in the image of God. She is firstly made in the likeness of God just as man was made in the likeness of God of equal status, honor, and value. And second, a woman is defined as a helper for man to help him subdue and multiply in God's creation. Last week, Pastor Steve gave us the definition of man, a definition of biblical manhood. And he said, a man is a biologically male human 
who embraces God's design for male headship, servant leadership, and sexual fidelity and protection of women. And so with these parameters in mind, let's finally come to a definition of biblical womanhood. And I want to let you know that part of this definition comes from the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so a a woman, a biblical woman, is this. A woman is a biologically female human who freely seeks to affirm, nurture, and receive strength and leadership from worthy men with consideration to her different relationships. Now, I want to break this uh, down, and I want to uh, kind of define and describe some of the terms that are used here. So first, uh, a woman is a biologically female human. A woman is a biologically female human. As we've seen from Genesis 1, gender is God-created. It's a God-created context, and it was declared good. And biblical womanhood affirms gender differences and the unique roles that they play as the genders complement one another. And as I said, we're going to be finishing up our family series next week on a sermon of gender and sexuality from Stephen Ganshaw, and I encourage you to come back to that. So a woman is a biologically female human who freely seeks to affirm, nurture, and receive strength and leadership. And what is meant here, what uh, I'm trying to get across here, comes from the phrase, a helper fit for him, from Genesis 2. And what we find is that biblical womanhood has the freedom to pursue her role to help men. And as we saw, this is not a a superior, inferior distinction, but God created woman from man for man, not as his rival or as his threat, but as his partner from his side. Men are called to lead spiritually, uh, intentionally, proactively through self-sacrifice, humility, and love, and women are called to seek out the ways that men are attempting to lead and then affirm, nurture, and receive that strength and leadership. Not from every man in the same way, and we're going to get to that in, mo- in a moment, but, but what does it mean uh, to affirm, nurture, and receive? Well, first, a biblically formed woman will be able to affirm strength and leadership in a man. She will be an advocate to the fact that men and women complement each other through distinct roles. And, and I want to I remind us here, I want to remind us here that a biblical woman does not have to experience male leadership in order to be a biblical woman. They are looking to affirm leadership where they see it. Right? As we've said before, um, women are not defined by their marriage Um, Women might have limited interactions with a man, and so they don't have to experience male leadership. A woman does not have to have a man over her in order for her to be a woman. They can affirm male leadership where they see it and in the contexts of the male relationships that they have. So a woman affirms, Um, Secondly, a biblical woman senses a responsibility to help nurture and strengthen biblical manhood where she sees it. 
So we affirm, nurture, and then lastly, a, biblical, a biblically formed woman is glad when a worthy man offers appropriate leadership based on the relationship. She is glad when a worthy man is not passive. She is glad when her husband takes initiative and leadership. She receives this leadership. And so a biblical woman is a biologically human female who freely seeks to affirm, nurture, and receive strength and leadership from worthy men. And whatever the dating apps might lead you to think, there are worthy men out there. There are worthy men out there. There are men who desire the things of the Lord. There are men who want to lead spiritually, but there are also men who are unworthy. Men who do not have a clear understanding of biblical manhood. Men whose leadership does not come from a place of self-sacrifice. Whose strength is not used for the protection and the promotion of women. And what this phrase, worthy men, is meant to do, it's meant to be a qualification for the type of leadership and strength that is affirmed by a biblically formed woman. A biblically formed woman would primarily seek Christ and his leadership to give discernment to the things that she ought to approve of. And this is not to place women in judgment of men or men in judgment of women, but rather to mutually encourage and spur one another on to be conformed to the image of Christ and the biblical roles that our gender would have us play. Sisters, you are called to pursue biblical womanhood despite the circumstances, right? Just as men are called to pursue biblical manhood despite the circumstances, men, uh, women are called to affirm, receive, and nurture leadership even if that leadership is less than ideal. This does not mean that you should be led into sin, abused, or walked over But just because the leadership is less than ideal does not give us cause to refuse it. And this is true for men as well, especially in marriage. Marriage, uh, Men, you are called to self-sacrificing leadership in your marriage and in your manhood, even when your wife does not respond or creates problems. Our call to manhood and womanhood is individual, and it's not dependent on uh, external circumstances. However, it is not expressed the same in all circumstances. And this is what we're trying to get across this last part of the definition. With consideration to her different relationships, so she will receive, nurture, and affirm uh, strength and leadership from worthy men with consideration to her different relationships. A biblically formed woman does not affirm, nurture, and receive strength and leadership from all men in the same way. For example, a woman who is Married does not welcome the same kind of strength and leadership from a random man as she would from her husband. A biblically formed woman affirms, nurtures, and receives strength and leadership from men in appropriate ways based on the relationship. And we could um, get into what that means, uh, but we don't have the time. There are so many different relationships, so many different contexts in which men and women relate to each other. But what we're trying to do is provide um, a principle, a context, a definition of biblical womanhood that you, in your discernment, would take into your various relationships. 
But this is, I believe, from Genesis 1 and 2, a sound definition of biblical womanhood. And so how do we take this definition and contextualize it into how we act and how we treat, how women act and how women are treated? So let's get into some practicals of what it means to be a biblically formed woman. And remember, we're, we're speaking specifically about uh, women here. What is the role of a biblical woman in certain situations? Not, what is the role of a Christian in certain situations? For example, all Christians, all Christians are, in call, are encouraged to uh, uh, build and have the fruit of the Spirit growing in them. All Christians are called to have love, joy, peace, and patience. So the question is, how does a woman contextualize these characteristics into her role to affirm, nurture, and receive strength in leadership? Let's, uh, let's first look at a woman's role in her marriage. A wife, a wife is called to follow the godly direction of her husband within the household while her ultimate devotion is to Christ above all. She follows Christ's leadership first and foremost. In God's intended design, the husband is leading in such a way that the wife grows in her love for Jesus Christ. And this is not the same as male domination. It is not the same as a man asserting his will over his wife. Women were not created to be dominated by men. Look at what God tells Eve as a result of the fall. Uh, in Genesis 3.16, Eve's, uh, the curse on women is that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Women weren't created to be dominated by men. This is a result of sin. The husband leading in the home was a pre-fall condition, but sin has entered in and now you have some men distorting their leadership through disrespect, domineering, abuse, and neglect. The fact is, is that leading and dominating are not synonymous. Wives, this role in marriage is not doormat theology. It is not that you are walked over and forced into servitude. You are called as, as a woman in her marriage to be servant-hearted and respectful, yes, but the Bible teaches that men lead in the home, but the only Lord of your home is Jesus Christ. And husbands, your wife is not your slave, right? Oh, my wife is not doing what I command her to do. I'm ordering her to do. That's a crude and selfish distortion of submission. It's a weaponization of submission, and it highlights a lack of self-sacrifice. Men, we are called to lead with love and grace, and it should be an honor for her to follow godly leadership. Men... Lead as Jesus did with the church, by selflessly serving and sacrificing. And so what is the conduct of a godly wife? We uh, read part of this passage this morning, but let's look at, at Proverbs 31. And I'm actually just going to summarize Proverbs 31. Um, as it paints a picture of a godly wife, Proverbs 31 calls the godly wife uh, trustworthy, she seeks the good of others. She stewards her household. She is strong and determined. She is compassionate to the poor. 
She cares for the needy. She is bold and courageous. She speaks wise and kind words. She's diligent in her work, and her children and husband rejoice in her. And right now, all of the husbands in the room are saying, yeah, my wife doesn't live up to that. And men, I would say that we don't lead perfectly either. And so what is Proverbs 31? How are we not crushed under the weight of what Proverbs 31 calls us to be? I want to point us to uh, one verse. Proverbs 31.30 says this, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31 is not to make women despair, because you will never do all of these things perfectly. But the fruit in your life is produced from the gospel at work in your heart. These are not prescriptive words that we find in Proverbs 31 that you should try your best to live up to all of these ridiculous standards. These are descriptive. You are growing in these godly traits through Christ in your life. And I think that women more than men feel this crushing guilt and shame of not living up to the ridiculous expectations of of Instagram and Pinterest and and sisters. When you look at Proverbs 31, this is is not telling you what you ought to do. You are more than what, what you do. Proverbs 31 is declaring who you already are when you're in Christ Jesus because of who he already is and what he did for you. And so don't be crushed under the weight of Proverbs 31 Follow Christ's leadership and see these things produced in your heart as the gospel goes to work. This is the conduct of a godly wife, one who pursues Christ above all things. A second passage I want to look at as we look at the conduct of a godly wife comes from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 3-4. This is to, uh, to women, to women in the church. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We have a God who sees more than skin deep. We have a God who sees true beauty. And yes, God created the external person, but he delights in the internal, and we should do the same. Men, value women as made in God's image. Don't objectify them, don't minimize them, don't belittle them, but hold them in high regard and esteem. And women, your value is not in achievement or comparison. Find your value in Christ and seek inner godly character in him. And this is uh, just a brief look at the conduct of a biblical, of a biblically formed woman. I want to close with the treatment of women. The treatment of women. Women are uh, so prominently featured in God's redemptive story throughout Scripture. And they're often, oftentimes, uh, especially by Jesus Christ, counterculturally supported, valued, and honored. The Bible features so many of these women of value and dignity, and I wish that we had time to get into all of these different stories, all of these different um, people who shows godly, uh, biblically 
feminine character. We have people like Sarah and Rebecca, uh, Rachel and Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Hannah, Abigail, Esther, Martha, Phoebe, Priscilla, and the list goes on and on and on. Women are so prominently featured in Scripture. And while these ladies uh, weren't perfect, while these ladies weren't perfect, they were honored and they were valued and they were consulted. And if you want to see how a woman should be treated, look at how Jesus interacted with them. He showed them dignity and value. At a time when, when women were shamed and marginalized, when they were seen as property, Jesus honored and respected them, and it was radical and it was countercultural. He shows kindness to the woman at the well. He praises his mother and cares for her. He shows mercy to the woman with bleeding. He demonstrates love for Mary and Martha. He teaches the personhood of women. He tenderly heals a woman with a spinal ailment and he ministers to widows. Again, I could keep going. And so if you want to see how a woman should be treated, look at how Jesus treated women. There's no place in the Christian life for dishonoring or slandering women. Crude jokes and stereotypes should not exist in our vocabulary. And so I'd encourage you to watch what your language says about your view of women. And this is an encouragement to both the men and the women in the room. We ought to treat women just as Jesus treated them, as worthy of honor, as valuable, as people to be consulted, and as people to be loved and supported. Men and women are different, and that is a beautiful reality. Culture wants to get rid of any differences between men and women. It would have us be blended into one gray mess, or it wants to set women and men against each other. But God's desire is that men and women be seen as equal in status and different in role, completely complementary to one another. Our differences are beautiful, reflecting God's own beauty and diversity.